Welcome to Time Out Bulls, driven by Lexus. You can visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the redesigned Lexus RX. I'm your host, Chuck Swirsky. Our guest on this episode is Chicago Bulls and White Sox chairman Jerry Reinstorf. Now, Jerry and I discuss his days growing up in Brooklyn and buying two iconic sports franchises in the great city of Chicago. We're talking, of course, about the Bulls and the Sox. So let's jump right into it with Time Out Bulls. So we can go a lot of different directions, but I want to start in Brooklyn, New York. What is your first recollection of, of as a kid in anything of Brooklyn, New York? Oh, I don't think I have a first recollection of Brooklyn because that's that's where I was born. I mean, so I mean, but, but at school or playing well, in, in the backyard well, or in the streets. I think my 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 my, my first interesting recollection was uh, when I was uh, nine years old, <clears throat> 1945. I uh, went over to my friend Norman Rickens' house and rang the bell and asked his mother if he could come out and play. And she said, well, he was listening to a baseball game. And uh, I thought, who listens to a baseball game? I knew, I knew baseball was something kids played. I didn't know you listened on a radio to it. And that's, that's sort of my first recollection of anything interesting about Brooklyn. So during that period of time, Jerry, and again, you're a very young boy, do you remember much about World War II or getting information in school or different outlets? I, I don't remember the start of World War II, but I do remember being in World War II because I remember uh, ration stamps and I remember we couldn't get rubber balls to play with. Uh, we had to have window shades, uh, black window shades on our apartment windows at night or we couldn't turn the lights on. Um, so I remember that. I remember the soldiers and the air raid, uh, air raid drills that we had. And of course, I remember the end of the war. But I don't remember, I don't have a memory of Pearl Harbor. So, so did you have a grasp of what was going on at the time? Did you have any discussions at school about what was happening and the significance of the war? Oh, certainly. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we bought uh, saving stamps. I think if, every time you had a nickel or a dime, I can't remember what it was, you could get a stamp, and then when you accumulated a certain number of stamps, they issued you a war bond. Uh, you know, and I remember, the, you know, my my uh, mother's brother being in the war. He was in the infantry, and uh, you know, we obviously talked about Hitler, and uh, and and the movies were, you know, we, there were a lot of movies about about the war, uh, mostly John Wayne movies, but I remember. Uh, Wake Island with William Bendix and uh, a bunch of other war movies. So it was definitely on everybody's mind, uh, you know, what was going on. And, and uh, ironically, here we are, we're talking about your life. William Bendix, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he play Babe Ruth? Yes, he played Babe Ruth in the, in the first of the Babe Ruth movies. It was kind of a farcial uh, thing, but uh, yeah, he, he did play Babe, most famously known for Life of Riley. Yes. So getting back to our initial conversation, so one of your friends is listening to a baseball game on the radio. As a, as a kid, when you would go to bed, uh, because in those days, did they have night baseball or did they, or was everything in the afternoon? Uh, in those days, there were, there was maybe one night game a week. Bro Brooklyn uh, got uh, uh, night baseball in 1939. They were the second team. Cincinnati was the first team. Uh, and, but but typically it was it was one night game a week, 
So, so usually it was it was day baseball. So after school, would you race <laughs> home to listen to games, or uh, your your love for the sport itself? How did how did you kind of gravitate to baseball? Well, once I, I once I got hooked on it, I got hooked. I, I got hooked badly. I, I saw my first game when I was ten years old, nineteen forty six, and and I was hooked after that. And I was used to listen to baseball on the radio every opportunity that I could get. Um, Dodgers played at. Uh, I think 120. I think was when they played their games, and so, so when I was in grammar school, I, I would get out around three o'clock, and I'd re, you know I'd go home and listen to the games. W- when I was in high school, I was able to arrange my schedule so that I got out of, uh, of school at about 12:35, so it was easy for me to get home in time to uh, listen to the games on the radio, and then we got television in 19. 19- 50, I think it was, and so that's when I started watching on TV. So, so when you would listen to the baseball, was, was it Red Barber? Was it Vin? Was it Ernie Harwell? Was it Mel Allen? A combination of all those? Yeah, well, it, it, Red Barber was the, was the primary Dodger announcer. Uh, <clears throat> Mel Allen was the primary Yankee an- announcer. Russ Hodges worked with Mel Allen, then he went over to the Giants. Um, then Red, uh, Red Barber, in, I believe it was 1950. Uh, developed a, a bad stomach ulcer, and he had to uh, uh, he had to take the rest of the season off. And Branch Rickey traded a, uh, a minor league catcher named uh, uh, Cliff Dapper to the Atlanta mm-hmm. Crackers for Ernie Harwell, and that's so Ernie came to the Dodgers, and that's how, that was Ernie's entry into the big leagues. And of course, you know that having been a good friend of Ernie's. Yes. Um, and then um, then Ernie left the, the Dodgers and went to the Giants, and that's when Vince Scully came in. So there were some great announcers, uh, you know, in New York in those days. Now, did you play a lot of stickball? Yeah. <clears throat> I played a lot of stickball, a lot of baseball, a lot of basketball in the schoolyard. But we had some other interesting games. We had a game. We had punch ball, which was like baseball, but you you, you punch the rubber ball instead of with your hands instead of with a bat. And we, we had all sorts of games that you that you could play in the street where you didn't have to have any money. Uh, what was your favorite subject in school? And I guess arithmetic was my favorite subject. I was always pretty good in, in, in arithmetic in grammar school and then math in high school. And and so you are a baseball fan. You're listening to the radio. When is your first time you went to a major league game? Can you remember that? Oh, sure. Everybody remembers the first major league game you went to. It was a, I went with my friend Norman Ricken and another friend, John Norman Lambrecht, and his mother was the adult that took us. We were 10 years old. It was uh, against the Cardinals. Brooklyn versus the Cardinals, and uh, and, uh, and and Brooklyn won, uh, and that was 1946. Unfortunately, uh, 1946 season ended with Brooklyn and St. Louis in a tie, first time there had ever been a tie, and the uh, Cardinals uh, uh, beat the Dodgers uh, uh, two games to nothing in a in a best of three playoff. As, as a kid, did you have a favorite ball player? Well, my ba- favorite ball player from day one was Pee Wee Reese. And why is that? Uh, because Pee Wee was the leader of the Dodgers, and I always I always took the leaders, and uh, he he wasn't the captain in '46, but he was pretty well known that he was the leader, and then ultimately became the captain of the Dodgers. Um, you know, I, Duke Snyder was uh, also a favorite because he, he uh, the first few years he was with the Dodgers, he lived on our block, and uh, he would he would come out after the games after the, the, the day games were over, <laughs> he'd come home and play stickball with the kids. So I I, I liked the Duke a lot. And then, of course, Jackie Robinson was a particular favorite of mine. 
because of how exciting it was. And I was actually at Ebbets Field the first day to Jackie Robinson played for the Dodgers. You were, you were at his first game? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and it, it was not it was not June, uh, July, hold on, it was not April 15th, 1947. That's That was his first regular season game. But his first game in a Dodger uniform was a couple of days before that when the Dodgers played the Yankees in a preseason game. That's the game that I was at. Was was there a build-up to that, having the first African-American player to to play in a major league game? Do you remember some of that? Well, you have to remember I was 11 years old, mm-hmm. and I, I really wasn't terribly aware of social significance. Brooklyn was a melting pot, so we had plenty of you know plenty of black uh, friends. Uh, my memory was that Jackie was coming up as a first baseman. And we had another rookie named Spider Jorgensen as a third baseman. And all we ever were concerned about was, what could these guys play? Because we had, we had lost in a playoff the, the, the year before after having had a seven-and-a-half game lead. We blew it. Cardinals beat us. 1947, we wanted to win the pennant. And all we ever talked about was, could these two rookies play? Now, years later, I went back and I looked at the, uh, uh, the newspapers. They did some research. And they didn't make it nearly out to be as big a thing as... Uh, you know, as as we have looking back, I think the New York Times, you know, had some minor coverage of it. It was it was it wasn't the, as sensational as you would believe uh, today. And as far as that opening game, the April fifteenth uh, opening first game of the season, it wasn't even a sellout. I think there were twenty five, twenty six thousand people there. So uh, it, it, the significance came later on. Jerry, give us give us a rundown about Jackie Robinson as a player. What type of player was he? Well, Jackie Robinson, first of all, was a 27 or a 28-year-old rookie, so you know he 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 really uh, didn't come up when most players came up. But he was not the best player I ever saw. He was the most exciting player I ever saw. He was the most intelligent player I ever saw. Uh, he could. What defined that, Jerry? Well, he, he he had so many different ways that he could beat you. He could beat you with a home run. He could beat you with a bunt. He could steal a base. He was an incredible second baseman. Uh, you know, there, there there wasn't anything that he can do. Uh, uh, he had he had this little trick that he would play on right fielders. He did a, he'd get a single to right field, and he'd round the bag. He'd take a big wide turn around the bag, and uh, tempting right fielders to, to throw behind him. And if, if they threw mm. behind him, he'd be on second. <laughs> if he if, if eventually they stopped doing that, and they would just throw to second. He'd retreat to first. And he had you know he he, he sold seven home seven times one season. Uh, God knows how many balks he. He caused by his, his antics of, you know, running halfway down the line at third base, uh, and it was just you have to yeah you have to see him to appreciate it. He was you know, he was also a great football player, a great basketball player. I've seen video of him playing football, and uh, it reminds me a lot of Gale Sayers. Once he got into the open field, you couldn't catch him. He could change directions and speeds at will. So, and at one point in the New York area, Snyder, Mays, and Mantle were all playing at the same time. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, Snyder came up first. Then uh, then Mandel and Mays both, I think, came up in 51. And so, yeah. well, I mean, that must have been unbelievable to have three major players in the same city within miles apart playing a significant role for their clubs. Well, that's true. That's why they wrote a song, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, Willie was, Willie was the best all-around player. Mandel had the most power. And Snyder was the best defensive player. But, uh, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, we would never admit that Willie was better than Duke, but he was. 
When you first saw Mickey Mantle, did you envision he was going to have the career that he had? Yes. When Mantle came up, he was 19 years old, but you could see the enormous power that he had. Incredible, incredible power. And and he, you know, he could outrun anybody. I mean, batting left-handed, he was three he was 3.1 seconds down the first base line, and and he was a great bunter. If he if, if he bunted the ball fair, it was going to be a base hit. Hmm. When Brooklyn left for the West Coast, how did that make you feel? Well, when Brooklyn left, I, I felt betrayed. And the funny thing is, I left Brooklyn at the same time to come to Chicago. But, uh, you know, I, I felt betrayed. I still feel it was, a, it was an incorrect decision. The owner should never have let an iconic franchise leave. Uh, it's true that baseball needed to be on the West Coast. But, but baseball could have expanded to the West Coast. In fact, that's what happened. A couple of years later, baseball went through its first expansion. Uh, the, the, the Dodgers were replaced with the Mets, um, and the Giants were not replaced because the Giants, the Giants probably their time had come. The Gi- Giants uh, played in the Polo Grounds, an old ballpark that was walking distance to the Yankee Stadium. It, it didn't make any sense anymore to have two, two ballparks that close to each other. But baseball could easily have expanded to the West Coast. Jerry, how often do you get back to Brooklyn? Uh, I get to Brooklyn very rarely. I've, I've been a f- there a few times and taken grandchildren there, but I don't often get back there. So, because they have, I don't know where it is now, but where Ebbets Field was, or even the Polo Grounds, and there is a plaque or some, you know, significance of where that hallowed ground was. Do, do a lot of memories go through your mind when you when you visit that? Well, yeah, the, the Ebbets Field apartments now sit where Ebbets Field did. There, there's some sort of a plaque, and I've seen it, you know, a couple times. Uh, but I don't have any real reason to go to Brooklyn, uh, other than I wanted to take my grandchildren back there so they could see where I grew up and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But uh, uh, really, I go to New York a lot, but rarely do I go to Brooklyn. Speaking of which, the significance your parents had on shaping you in sports was your father a, a baseball fan? Was he? Uh, did he encourage you to say, hey, listen, you know what, we're going to go to the ballpark? Or did he want you to become, you know, something? No, my father had no interest in sports. My father was a hardworking guy. He worked hard six days a week. On Sundays, he'd be exhausted. The first baseball game he ever saw was when the White Sox were in the playoffs in 1983. Really? And uh, he, he came down to Baltimore to, to see the two games that we played in Baltimore. Had no interest in sports. Didn't encourage me or discourage me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was just what everybody, every kid in Brooklyn did. I mean, we, we played all the sports, mostly in the street or in a schoolyard. Uh, but it's not something I got from my parents. It's just that that's what all the kids did. And how about your mom? Tell me about her. Well, my, my mother was uh, a great mother. I, I, you know, I, I, even to this day, I end up quoting her all the time about different things. Uh, and But she had no interest in sports either. Uh, you know, she... She was glad it was something that I liked, but, but, but her interest basically was, uh, you know, my getting an education and hopefully becoming a doctor. And uh, so her first disappointment was when she had to find out that I couldn't stand blood and I wasn't going <laughs> to be a doctor. So what did you want to become? I always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, From day one? Yeah, well, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I would say, I, I can think back to maybe when I was nine, ten years old, I wanted, I wanted someday to be a lawyer. And is that one of the reasons you elect to go to George Washington University? No, I went to George Washington University because I had to go someplace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I 
and and I went there for the wrong reason, but it turned out to be a great place. I, I well, I wanted to go to a college where I didn't have to take math or science in college because I thought they were two useless subjects <laughs> for when I was going to become a lawyer. Did you like school? I yeah, I did. I I I enjoyed my my college years. Those four years of college, I think, were the best years of my life. I really really enjoyed it, but. At the same time, I was anxious to get it over with because I, you know, I wanted to get on with life and earn some money. So did you ever go see the Washington Senators play? So the Washington Senators play a number of times uh, in old Griffith Stadium. Uh, they rarely had anybody there, uh, very, very small crowds. Uh, so the Dodgers play there one year as in an exhibition game because they were in different leagues. But I, I'd, I'd go to a six or eight Washington Senator games a year. So, Jerry, when, when did it... When did it hit you that say, you know what, I, I'm doing well in my profession, things are going smoothly, I, I want to kind of put my foot in the water a little bit and test the, the temperature for a ball club? Well, the whole thing was an accident. Uh, 1975, I answered an ad in the Wall Street Journal, a fellow named John Alavisos, who had been a general manager for Ted Turner, and at that time was with the Red Sox. And Alavisos ran an ad uh, looking for limited partners to buy a team, uh, to invest with them to buy a team. So I contacted him, and his plan was to buy the Giants and move them to Toronto. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll invest with you. But that didn't happen. Giants ended up staying in San Francisco, and Toronto got an expansion team. And then the following year, uh, he, he called me and said uh, he was going to try to buy Cleveland Indians. So I said, okay, I'm in. That didn't work out. Then another year later, he he, uh, he tried to buy the Mets, and that didn't work out. And, and so I'm, I'm in the shower one day, just you know, daydreaming as I often do. And the thought occurred to me, well, why did I want to invest in a team that didn't play where I lived? Because in those days, there was no satellite coverage. Mm -hmm. I'd never get to see them play. And why did I want to be a passive investor? And the thought hit me that Bill Veck and his group had owned the White Sox for five years, and Veck was never known to be a long-term guy. He, would, he was in and out, in and out. And so through a, uh, through a friend, I contacted him, and he said, yeah, he wanted to sell. And that's how the whole thing came about. So when you, when you have the opportunity, you, you, you put a deal together, you buy the White Sox. Did you all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, what have I done? Or was this something where you said, man, this is going to be great? Well, I was very excited, uh, you know, when we made the deal. The funny thing is that... Um, on the same day that we were approved, that Eddie Einhorn and I were approved by the American League, there was a sale approved by a group headed by, by Danny Kay, the guy named George Argeros. So Einhorn and I were approved first, and we're not, then allowed to sit in the room. And we're so happy. We're looking at each other. We're smiling. I remember saying, Daddy, can you believe we're in here? And then the first order of business after we got in was the approval of the sale of Mariners from Danny Kay to George Argeros. And when that was approved, Danny Kay was so happy he was singing and dancing on the table, literally. And I turned to Eddie, I said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We're happy to get in and this guy's happy to get out. I mean, maybe we don't know what we're doing. And of course, that first year, 1981, we were hit with a baseball player's strike. We lost a lot of money in 81, we lost a lot of money in 82. And I, you know, it, it, it was looking like maybe we hadn't done the right thing. Maybe, maybe we had made a mistake. But uh, things started to turn around in 84 when we uh, won the Western Division Championship. What was the first order of business when you bought the ball club? First order of business was to call Howard Pizer and, and ask him if he would serve as a transition 
uh, team. You know, Reagan had just been elected president, and he and he had a transition team. I know I had a business I was running, um, and, uh, and and Eddie had to disengage himself from his activities in New York. And we needed somebody to come in, tell us what we had, and and and, and sort of be a transition. And Howard Pizer agreed to do that in 1981 and he never left he's still here so when you were in a in an owners meeting when you first bought the ball club did you just sit back and listen or did you roll up your sleeves because you had innovative and creative ideas i don't think i spoke at, a, at an owners meeting for a year um you know I, I i i can't imagine anybody entering into a new business world thinking he knows as much as the people are in it. So I just wanted to learn. I, I, I knew I didn't know much. I knew I, I knew I thought I knew a lot about baseball, but I didn't know anything about the business of baseball. And so it had to be at least a year before I spoke up. So what owners did you gravitate to or really say, you know what, this guy has his act together? Well, of course, Bud Selig, uh, you know, uh, Edward Bennett Williams. Mm-hmm. Or Baltimore. Yeah. Baltimore. John Fetcher, Fetzer in Detroit. I'd say those three guys that uh, that I got close to right away. And then Fred Wilpon in New York, because mm-hmm. we were both Brooklyn guys. Uh, and I would say, you know, most most of the owners who were in the game when I got in, I, I got friendly with very fast. They were a great bunch of guys. What was it like dealing with Charlie Finley and George Steinbrenner? Well, Finley was gone. Finley left just before I got there, and, and, and the Haas family, had, and uh, bought him out, and and the president of the, the A's was was uh, Roy Eisenhardt, who was the son-in-law of Walter House, and Roy and I became extremely good friends. Uh, Steinbrenner was kind of interesting because uh, you know he was so bombastic, and uh, we had our run-ins, but we we ultimately became very very good friends. Well, like run-ins regarding players or trades or just baseball dealings. Well, we our first our first run-in was over Steve Kemp. Because uh, uh, Steve, we had traded for Steve Kemp at the end of the '81 season. He was a free agent after '82, and uh, we offered him a five-year contract at three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, I and I told George that that was it. We, you know, we were done at, at that. And um, the um, nobody, as far as I don't know, nobody else is bidding. And George came along and bought a, and, and offered him double what we had offered him. <laughs> and you know. So it, it's, it's, it, it, it seemed to me that that, that was pretty, that, that was dumb, and, and, and it was driving the price of players up. And so uh, I had an outburst where I said something about uh, we ought to put a team in the Meadowlands and, and cut into his market. And then he, he called Eddie and I the Cats and Jammer kids and uh, uh, I forget something else. And then, I, and, then I, and then Eddie asked me at the All-Star game, uh, party in 1983. How can you tell when George Steinbrenner's lying? And my answer was he moves his lips. And so <laughs> it was going pretty good there for a while. But somewhere along the line, we uh, it all changed and we became very, very good friends. Thanks for tuning in to Time Out Bulls. Lexus is proud to bring you this peak under the hood. The all-new Lexus RX is the perfect blend of chiseled design, aggressive performance, and luxury finishes. And with 44 inches of legroom, even our Bulls athletes would be comfortable in one. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive an RX today. Now, back to the show, Time Out Bulls. You know, the 83 All-Star game, 
Jerry, will without question be one of the best All-Star games ever. It was a who's who. You brought everyone in. It was spectacular. When you went down on the field and you saw Mays or DiMaggio and all these people, did you return to your days as a little boy and say, I can't believe I'm here? Yes. Uh, well, you know, there, there, there was a, a picture taken of it. I think we invited every Hall of Famer, living Hall of Famer, and every five-time All-Star. And the only living Hall of Famers that didn't show were Mays and Mantle, and I think that's because Bowie wouldn't let them because they were they had some Atlantic City gambling connections. And there was a there was a picture. They all posed for a picture, and, and somebody called me and asked me to get into the picture, and I wouldn't do it because I thought I didn't belong with those guys. Mm. Uh, Eddie Einhorn did take one with them, and I since regretted it. It would have been nice to have been in that picture, but I just I just felt I didn't belong with with, with these heroes of my youth, you know. With, George Sisler, I think, was still alive, and, uh, you know, and, and all of it, it was the players that even went before when I started following baseball. Jerry, the '83 team, um, terrific ball club, losing to Baltimore, who went on to win the World Series that year over Philadelphia. When, when the ball club lost the playoff series, how long did it take you to recover, or did you say, you know what, I just bought the ball club a few years ago, we're on the right track, we're going to be back here? Uh, over the next few years, we got a window, or give me an idea what your mindset was post-83. Yeah, well, well, the day after we clinched, we clinched the division on September 17, 1983. The, the next day, we had a celebration on the field, and all the players were introduced. Eddie and I were introduced. And I remember standing next to Jerry Kuzman, and, and, and Kuzman said to me, enjoy the moment, they're few and far between. Uh, little did I know it would be 10 years before we'd get back to the postseason. Um, you know, 1984, we had basically the same team, but we added Tom Seaver. And there was, you know, all we talked about all spring was who were we going to play in the playoffs. And we were, we were far too cocky. Players were far too cocky. And we didn't make it. We, 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 we didn't make it. And it took us until 1993 to get back. But that, that 83 team was, was my favorite team. It's still my favorite team. The 83 club, yeah. not 2005. No, I'm look. Winning the World Series is the best. But as far as the guys were concerned, the people on that team, they, they were the best. And plus, we were closer in age than them. I mean, you know, I was uh, in '83. I was uh, how old was I? I don't know. Four, uh, 44 years old. Um, no, 47 years old. 47 years old. And you know, so I wasn't that far away from their age. But they just were a great bunch of guys. They had a lot of fun, and they were the veterans. Uh, Greg Lozinski and uh, and uh, Jerry Kuzman. Uh, and Lamar Hoyt, and then young players like uh, uh, Britt Burns, and Ron Kittle was the Rookie of the Year, and Greg Walker. It was just a great bunch of guys, and uh, they loved each other. They really did. They, they, they really did enjoy each other. So that was my favorite team. Uh, the, the signings of significance as far as free agents or trades that came here, wh where do you think the White Sox did very well as far as just an identity and also an impact with the franchise. Would you say the Fisk signing was the, was the, at the top of the list? Yeah, the Fisk signing was our number one signing because uh, I, I used to refer to the White Sox as the Rodney Dangerfield of baseball. Um, you know, they didn't get no respect. And um, and, and when we when, when we bought the team, uh, we talked about you know we were going to build through the farm system. We weren't going to sign free agents, and there was a collective yawn in the, in the town. 
And Eddie really pushed me to go after Fisk when Fisk became a free agent. And uh, nobody thought, really, literally nobody thought that we, the White Sox could ever get Carlton Fisk. And when we got him, that changed the whole perception of the ball club. How did you get him? Uh, we, we got him by going out to California and, and romancing him, being with him and his agent, talking to his wife on the phone. I don't know how many trips Eddie and Roland, him and I made out to, went out to California. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I don't think there was all that much interest in him except by the Red Sox. So we were just competing against the Red Sox. And the Red Sox had kind of hurt his feelings uh, by their lack of you know, really real interest in him. And it was a, kind of a complicated story how he became a free agent. And we just, you know, we just, we just stayed on it. And we, I, I hope we, could, we convinced him, we tried to convince him that we were serious about trying to win. Um, and so that, that, but once we signed Fisk, that changed the whole perception of everything. And then within days after that, we, we traded for Greg Lozinski, and, uh, and we, we, got off to, we got off to a pretty good start in, uh, in, in 81. In fact, you know, the, the attendance record in Chicago, I believe, was a, a million five sixty set by the White Sox during the, the year of the Southside Hitman, whatever that was, 77. Mm -hmm. And we were on a pace to draw two million people, which had never been done in Chicago, and then the strike hit. And then, you know, that, that everything blew apart. But then the year after the strike, we, we won um, 85 or 87 games, and in 83, we, you know, we, we won 99 games. So uh, it all started with Fisk. It all started with Carlton Fisk. The 93 team, uh, I, I, I know they lost to the Jays in the uh, Divisional Championship Series. How good was that ball club? That ball club was very good, but I think the 94 team was the best team I had. Uh, it, was, it had everybody on the 93 team but it also had the Darren Jackson, and I can't remember who else we had on. But that 93, 94, those, those are the two best teams we had. And the 94 club, of course, the, there was the... Was another strike. Sorry. Yeah, another strike at 84. But uh, we found out later that, that, that Jack McDowell had been tipping his pitches, and, mm. and the Jays had him. Because, you know, Jack was, uh, he was Cy Young that year, and yet he lost both of his starts. So... You know, if we had realized that, maybe it would have been a different result. It was clear that whoever won the American League pennant was going to win the World Series because the Phillies were really not a, a very, very good team that year, even though they won a pennant in the National League. Jerry, as an, as an owner, do you draw the line as far as relationships with players, or do you? How do you handle that? All that? Well, it's changed over the years. I mean, when I first got into the game, I was a little older than the players and uh, a little younger than uh, their fathers. Now I'm older than their grandfathers. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that's changed. So I have much less interaction with the players today than I, than I did in the early years. But yeah, I just want the players to know that I'm around. If they need me, they can, I'm here to help them. Uh, you know, I try to create the right atmosphere. But it's, it's pretty hard to be buddy-buddy with, with people who are younger than my grandchildren. All right, one final question. On baseball, then we'll we'll wrap it up and talk a little bulls. The 2005 World Series team. Do you think that team gets the respect it should? I think so. It was not a great team. It was not one of the great teams. But remember, they went uh, about 11 and one in the postseason. Mm -hmm. So no, no, nobody's beaten that. Uh, I think it would have gotten more respect if we could have repeated the following year, or at least gotten into the postseason the following year. And while we won 90 games the next year, uh, that was one of the few years that 90 games didn't get you into the postseason. Do you still enjoy being a baseball owner? 
Absolutely. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't continue to do it. So then, how did this turn from White Sox? And you know what? The Bulls may be available. Let's go there. Well, that's you know that's a story about uh, after I made friends with George Steinbrenner, we, uh, we were having a, a dinner in New York, summer 1984, and uh, he's moaning and groaning about. The, the Bulls, he owned, I don't know, 8 or 10% of the Bulls. They lost money every year. He's tired of writing checks. Uh, the Chicago Sting, the indoor soccer team, was outdrawing the Bulls. Mm -hmm. You know, George went on and on and on. And I said to George, you know, the, the problem is that the, the, the people who are running the Bulls are really not, they don't have the time to run the Bulls. And because his primary partners were three giants of industry. And they really didn't put the time in. I just casually said to George, they wouldn't run, they wouldn't lose money if I ran them. And a week later, I got a call from Lester Crown saying that everybody wanted to get out except Lester and uh, and Lamar Hunt. And uh, so you know, we made the, we we had a handshake in the summer of '84. I pleaded with George to stay in. He wouldn't listen to me. And uh, they had some legal issues they had to get over, so we couldn't close till I think it was January of '85. Uh, but but that's how that's how it came about. Uh, Did you go to many Bulls games when you were in Chicago? Yeah, I was a season ticket holder. I shared season tickets. I shared season tickets with some uh, people. Uh, and we, So I used to go to, I don't know, eight or ten Bulls games every year. And, and what did you think of the product? What did you think of the NBA? Well, I, 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 I didn't like I was a Knicks fan at that time because I was, I, was you know, I was a Knicks fan from the time they came into existence in 1946 when I was ten years old. And... Uh, and you know, and, and and I was a fan of Red Holtzman style of play and Boston Celtics style of play, and I, I thought the, the the Bulls were not you know not very exciting. Although there was that one year when they had this incredible run to get into the playoffs, uh, uh, when uh, I guess Mata must have been a coach at that time. Uh, what they win like twenty two out of twenty five. Yeah. Or something at the end, it was some incredible run. And they lost to Portland the playoffs. And they lost to Portland the year that Portland won the championship. Yes. Uh, but I, I I didn't like. NBA style of basketball at that time because it was all isolations and, and it was all about scoring and it wasn't about defense and I always believed that at the end of the day all sports, all championships are won by being good defensively So you, you hired Jerry Krause was that popular? No, no, hiring Jerry Krause was, was I don't think it was unpopular in the community because people didn't know Jerry Krause, it was unpopular among people in the basketball community um, you know, I, I I can't give the exact name away, but an extremely high up NBA official called me and said, well, you know, you, you made one of the dumbest mistakes of your life in hiring Jerry Krause. Really? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, when we go off the air, I'll tell you who it was. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, and, and I and I didn't I didn't seek him out. He sought me out after I after it was announced that I was buying the team. He sought me out. Told said he wanted to be a general manager. And, I, and I, I looked at him and I said, well, you know, what do you know about basketball? And he gave me his history because he had, had a history with the Bulls and the, and the, uh, the Sonics, I guess, and the uh, uh, Baltimore Bullets. Mm -hmm. um, and even then I wasn't convinced. But I asked him, you know, well, what would you do? How are you going to build a team? And his vision matched mine. So that's, that's what I hired him. So when, when you bought the ball club, the Bulls, and you have the White Sox, how did you juggle – or did you, or did you just let Roland Heeman, Jerry Krause do their thing, or how, how did that evolve over time? Yeah, that, that really wasn't very hard. Um, first of all, the, the seasons are not the same. 
you know, management's uh, major work is done in the off season, not during the season. But I've always believed in hiring good people and giving them a lot of authority, and, that, and that's and that's what I did in both cases. And by the time I got to basketball, I was already three or four years into baseball, so I really had gotten the knack of it. Um, so it, I, did, I didn't find it, uh, you know, very very difficult at all. I had I had to after Jerry, I had to do something in the on the business side because Bull's marketing was, was abysmal. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, I had Steve Shanwald, who was the number two guy at the White Sox, and I just appropriated him and moved him over, moved him over to the Bulls. Michael Jordan, first time you had a discussion with him, what was that like? What, did you talk hoops? Did you talk life? Did you, did you find him engaging or? You know, I can't remember the first conversation with Michael. I mean, obviously, the first time I met him, was after we, we, we closed on a deal and I went to a team practice at Angel Guardian uh, mm-hmm. High School. Wow. And that, that's, that's when I met Michael. Uh, I, can't rem- I can't remember what the first conversation was with him. Obviously, it, it would have taken place that first year, but it doesn't stick out in my mind. It's, it's, it's hard to say. I, re- I remember you, you came up with a quote that Michael Jordan is the Babe Ruth of basketball. Well, that's correct. Uh, I remember a, a, a judge, and we were involved in a lawsuit one time, not with Michael, and a judge said that Michael was the Barishnikov of basketball. And I said, no, Barishnikov is the Michael Jordan of ballet. <laughs> but, no, clearly Michael was, the, uh, was and still is the greatest player to ever play a game of basketball. You know, mm-hmm. Will there be somebody as good as he is or better? Maybe, but I, not, you know, I, I haven't seen anybody come close. Well, what what impact do you think he's had on generations of Chicago sports fans? Well, Michael Jordan and the Bulls, I think, changed the whole perception of, of Chicago and the world. You know, it used to be if you traveled around the world and you mentioned Chicago, somebody would say Al Capone. Uh, <laughs> now, if you do it, it's Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. I mean, it changed the whole perception of, uh, of Chicago, or literally around the world. I, I had somebody... Uh, uh, bring me back some bull stuff from Tibet. Uh, you know, I mean, just shocking. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, it's a global brand. And, and certainly uh, the, Michael and the championship teams are the ones that built that global brand. You know, Jerry, there, there, and it's well documented that there was some friction between himself and Jerry Krause. Did Michael ever come into your office and say, listen, you know what, we've got to go after this player. Did he make suggestions? Or, I mean, did uh, how did how did you massage that that relationship well michael made some suggestions uh particularly in uh, in the 1991 season he wanted to go after walter davis who i think was with denver at the yes time. that's correct and um you know and jerry didn't want to and the coaches didn't want to and we just you know, we told michael that you know, we, we don't believe he can help us right now michael is never a problem never a problem uh you know we we um we ran the rodman thing by him <clears throat> we weren't, you know, Dennis, getting Dennis Rodman, you know, was kind of a sensitive thing. So, be, because of the history of Rodman with Pippen and and also with the Bulls, we thought that it best to run that by Michael and Scotty, which we did. And probably if they objected, we wouldn't have signed Dennis. Best coach you've <laughs> ever dealt with? <laughs> the, well, I, I got one in each sport: Tony Larusa and Phil Jackson. What What makes those Larusa and Jackson unique? 
I think what well they they're both different personalities, but they both they both know how to get the confidence of their players, and they both you know the the key to coaching is to put players in a position where they can succeed and not ask them to do something they can't do, and 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 they are both really really good at that. Just knowing how to utilize the talents of the, of the players. Now, Phil is a little deeper with the uh, the Zen stuff and uh, the psychological stuff. Uh, Do you ever go to Phil and say, Phil, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I, 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 I never say what are you talking about because I, I think I understand it. I, I really do. Uh, no, I, don't, I, I don't think I'm into Zen, but I'm into meditation. Okay. I'm into meditation. Uh, now, Phil, just ha- he just has this quiet way of, of, of knowing what people are capable of and letting and letting them do it you know and, and, and same thing with, with Tony Tony is a great fundamental teacher Tony is, 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 is Phil Phil's always had great staffs I, I don't know that Phil is a brilliant X and O's guy because he had Tex Winter and he had Johnny Bach and, and even after he left here he had great staffs and Tony's had great staffs but Tony is a great teacher of fundamentals of how you play the game but in both cases, their players know that they have their they got the players' backs, and and and, and uh, I think that's that's the common thread. Jerry, give me an idea of what Jerry Reinsdorf's like watching a game. Your club is having a tough night at the office, or you're going through a tough stretch. Do you take losing personally, or at this point in your life, do you accept? You know what? It's not our year, or not our month, or not our stretch. Well, first of all, in baseball, you're going to lose 65 games if you have a good year. So, you know, you, you, you've got to accept losing. And in basketball, you know, you're going to lose 20 games even if you're having a good year. So, you you got you, you know, you got to learn how to lose. But, you know, Leo DeRocha said, show, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't go home happy after, after a loss. But, you know, but, but you have to be realistic. I mean, like the White Sox this year, there came a point when I realized that, you know, we just weren't going to win. We weren't going to live up to what we thought we were going to be able to do and you have, you have to live with it you have to you try to figure out why and, and you know and what changes they have to make going forward to get better but when you're in the car driving home after a game bulls game white Sox game win or lose is the car radio on do you need space and quiet do you take a game home with you do are you on the phone with your gm or your coach or how does that play well, out if if we won I'm listening to the highlights. <laughs> if we lost, I listen to news. And no, I, I if, if, uh, on the days that we lose, I don't want to think about the games. I don't want. I don't. I, I won't watch MLB Network. I won't watch ESPN. If we lost, I, I, I just I don't, I don't even want to think about the game. And if I hear if they're if, if I hear uh, uh, on the radio that they're about to give the sports scores that we lost, I change the station. I try to pretend it didn't happen. Do you read the newspapers every day? No. Harold Baines told me a long time ago not to read the Chicago papers. So I, I do read the Chicago paper, the Tribune, but not the sports section. Um, now both teams circulate you know, clips of, of, of today's articles. and I, So I go down the, uh, the cover page, and, I, and, I, and one of the headlines catches my eye. I'll go read the story. But, but uh, by and large, I listen to Harold Baines, and, and, and so I don't know. I really don't know who rips me and who's nice to me anymore. Uh, well, I, I, I want to ask you this, Jerry. How do you unwind? Other than 
other than watching a ball game, I don't know if that's unwinding, but I mean, do you enjoy music? Do you go to movies? What type of entertainment, you know, really are you locked into? Well, I unwind by with cigars. Do you have a favorite cigar? No, I got, there must be seven or eight different kinds of cigars that I like. Now that, that we have relations with Cuba, is that helpful? Uh, well, we, we're not, we're, uh, Cuban cigars are not legal yet. No, so, but one day they will be. Well, so when, they, when, they, when they're legal, they'll be cheaper. Because <laughs> you know, I still manage to get Cuban cigars. And the Cuban cigars are good. I think the Dominican cigars are good. But, you know, I feel... Uh, 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 a civic obligation, or uh, you know, if, if somebody gives me Cuban cigars, I know they're illegal, so it's, it's my duty to burn them. <laughs> and, and so How long have you been smoking cigars? Oh, I started smoking cigars in uh, the early 1970s. My Bob Juddelson, who's been my partner since, since 1970, got me hooked on them when we traveled. And it's my way of uh, controlling my weight. I smoke cigars instead of eating because I'm because when I when I'm tense I eat. Mm -hmm. So I smoke the cigars instead. I relax. I, re I read books. I mean I like nonfiction. I, I never read fiction. Um, you know I, I hang out with friends. I play with my dogs. I don't know. I uh, I, I never have a hard time, like, uh, you know, getting away. Do you like a particular singer or a? All entertainers that I like are dead. <laughs> so, like Sinatra, for example. Did you like Sinatra? Are you a Tony Bennett guy? No. He's still alive. Well, there, there's certain choices you had to make when I was growing up. Okay, Superman or Captain Marvel. <laughs> I was a Superman guy. Okay. Gene Autry or Roy Rogers. I was a. Gene Autry guy. Did you ever meet him, by the way, when you were I the did. owner? Yeah, with, I got to know Gene when I got to play baseball. Well, I mean, that must have been a thrill because here you are, you're listening to his music. Yeah. And I, well, except that Gene was kind of way past his prime. Oh, right okay. <laughs> uh, Pat Boone or Elvis Presley? I was a Pat Boone guy. Uh, Sinatra or Crosby? I was a Crosby guy. Okay. Okay. So I shouldn't admit it, but I, enough people know this. I still watch Lawrence Welk. Uh, on Sunday nights, Lawrence Welk shows are rebroadcast on PBS, and I I, uh, I TiVo them and I watch them. I mean, I, I like the music of the '40s. Sure, music of the '40s, music of the '50s. I never liked rock and roll. Um, you know, uh, I like classical, but I really like the music of the '40s and '50s. All right, I'm putting this aside now. I'm not talking politics, but you've met a lot of presidents, and you've been in the White House. You've met a lot of impressive people. Is there one person that you stood next to and you were awed by? Wow, that's really interesting. Um, no, I don't think so. I, 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 don't, I don't think I've ever been in awe of anybody. There's one person I wish I had met, and that's Harry Truman. And I would have loved to have met Winston Churchill. I probably would have been because, awed by Churchill. Because of Churchill and Truman, why? Well, Truman was my kind of guy. Okay, he was a, you know, he wasn't an educated man, but he had street smarts and he had guts, and 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 he, and, and he had the courage of his convictions. So when he made a decision, he stood by the decision. Is that is that describing yourself? If you looked in the mirror? Well, it's, it's it describes what I would hope I am. And you know, I don't, I, I can't pass judgment on myself, 
I don't think I I I don't think that I would be as good as Harry Truman. And and Churchill was just brilliant. I would you know and here's a guy that held the whole country together. That's why I would have liked to have met him. Uh, but I, I you know I, I I really can't say that there's any body logically if you're going to be in awe of somebody it should be a president of the United States. Um, but the ones that, the ones that I've met I thought were just guys. Mm-hmm. I just thought they were guys. Okay. Final question. What would Jerry Reinsdorf of 2016 tell a young Jerry Reinsdorf any advice as he goes through the ranks of life? Well, I think the one thing I would correct in my life is that as, as my family was growing up, I didn't give them enough time. I mean, my son Michael is so much better at it than I was. I fit vacations in around work, and I shouldn't have done that. I, I should have planned the family time and then worked around that. And uh, I still ended up spending plenty of good time with my family and have great relationships with my kids. But it would still have been better if, 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 if it had been more planned. Mm. Jerry, we appreciate your time. This has been fabulous. I know our listeners have appreciated it as well, so thank you. Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see how sophistication can be daring in the redesigned Lexus RX. Subscribe to Time Out Bulls on iTunes and Google Play. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until next time, this is Chuck Swirsky. Thanks for listening to Time Out Bulls.